This is The Sidebar for the week of May 12, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With President Trump's dismissal of now former FBI Director James Comey dominating the news, we spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tim Weiner. He wrote the book Enemies, A History of the FBI. No president has ever fired an FBI director who was investigating the White House or the president's associates. Full stop. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tim Weiner is the author of the book Enemies, A History of the FBI. He is joining us from New York City. Why was the FBI first created, and what role did J. Edgar Hoover play in its formation? The FBI dates back to 1908, and it was created uh, by President uh, Teddy Roosevelt in his last year. And his attorney general, uh, whose name was Charles Bonaparte, and yes, he was the great nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. And they had two aims in mind in creating an investigative division within the Justice Department. And one was to root out what uh, TR called malefactors of great wealth. Um, That is uh, the 1%, we would call them today, uh, who wielded enormous economic and political power. And the second was to uh, root out corruption in Congress. Uh, The two are not unrelated. The Bureau did not have a great deal of success um, in uh, in its early years. And by the time J. Edgar Hoover joined, uh, he was actually in the Justice Department as head of what was called the Radical Division, and during and after World War I, the job of that division was to um, destroy communism in America. By the time Hoover became the head of the Bureau of Investigation, uh, he had made his uh, claim to fame. Uh, he was not yet 30 years old. Uh, by uh, destroying, uh, personally and politically, uh people on the left. Ironically, it was this month in 1924 when J. Edgar Hoover began his career at what was the earlier iteration of the FBI. So he had worked for every president from Woodrow Wilson through Richard M. Nixon. Correct. His tenure as director lasted 48 years. There's no real precedent uh, for anyone holding power at that level for that long uh, elsewhere in American history. Why was he so influential, and why was he able to stay in this job for such a long period of time? Well, by the time World War II uh, loomed uh, in Europe uh, in the late 1930s, and President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, had ordered Hoover as the head of uh, now the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, to root out both communists and fascists uh, in the United States. Uh, There was no one uh, else in the government who had the kind of power that Hoover wielded. That power included the use of 
eavesdropping, wiretapping, bugging, what are called black bag jobs, which is breaking and entering um, into people's offices, homes sometimes, to plant bugs or to rifle through their uh, papers and files. And Hoover was uh, more interested in combating communism um, than fascism in America, but of course both were uh, threats at the time uh, until uh, the dissolution of the Hitler-Stalin pact uh, and the Soviet Union became uh, America's ally in the war against fascism uh, in Europe. Tim Weiner, I want to come back to J. Edgar Hoover later in our conversation because of the influence he has had on the FBI over the years. But let's talk about the news of the week, the firing of James Comey. Any precedent in President Trump's decision to oust the FBI director? No president has ever fired an FBI director who was investigating the White House or the president's associates. Full stop. So your reaction to what happened and how it unfolded? Well, as we speak, the story, uh, rather the White House's official explanation for the story, uh, changes uh, several times a day. Um, And it now appears that uh, many of the prior statements of the president and uh, his various uh, spokespeople are, uh, to uh, coin a phrase from Watergate, uh, inoperative. Uh, It appears to me, uh, and I think to a lot of other people, that the original explanations were uh, bogus or, um, shall we say, uh, somewhat distinct from truth, and that the real reason was that Trump as he has often said, uh, thinks the entire, uh, what he calls the Trump-Russia story, or the Russia Russia story is, to use his words again, a hoax. And he wants it to go away. And he wants the reporting that journalists are doing on the story to go away. Uh, And he wants uh, what he calls leaks about the story to cease. And he evidently felt that uh, Jim Comey uh, and the FBI were gathering steam on this investigation, and uh, he thought that decapitating uh, the FBI would be an effective means of bringing the investigation uh, to a halt or at least uh, impeding it. We know from the president's interview with NBC this week that there were three conversations, including a dinner between the president and the FBI director, James Comey, back in January. And the president now tweeting, you better hope that the conversations were not recorded. What's your take on that? I frankly don't know what to make of that. Um, He is clearly threatening Comey. Uh, telling him not to talk either to Congress or the public or the press um, about their interactions. Um, He may be implying that he, the president, taped this conversation, which would be extraordinary, uh, 
the example of Richard Nixon suggests that one should not be taping people secretly in the Oval Office. Um, but it, it, it struck me as a threat uh, against uh, the former FBI director to shut up. Uh, and it, like so many other things this week, and last week, and last month, and really uh, for the last year, uh, about uh, uh, this president and the way he conducts himself uh, in public and private, it's breathtaking. So what do you think is going through Jim Comey's mind right now, and what do you think his next step possibly could be? Well, I wrote a, I wrote a long profile about Jim Comey that appeared in Esquire magazine a few months ago, and um, in doing that reporting, I, I think I got some insights into uh, his conduct and his character. Um, I think uh, Mr. Comey is going to uh, try and get away from the uh, swamp of Washington, as, as President Trump calls it, and um, reflect on uh, events of uh, the past days and weeks and months. Uh, but I have no question that uh, he will be uh, called to testify to Congress, whether in closed or open session. And I have no question that he will comply with a lawful order from the Congress to so testify. How is the acting director chosen? We saw Andrew McCabe this week on Capitol Hill. What's that process like? Well, he, he was a number two uh, guy. He was Comey's deputy. So uh, Comey, having been decapitated, the number two guy steps up and, and uh, becomes the acting director. And what do you know about him? Uh, McCabe uh, has a reputation as a uh, careful, cautious um, uh, investigator of uh, federal crimes, um, as a person who's very good at briefing um, presidents and, and uh, his counterparts uh, in the intelligence community. Uh, we have to remember that the FBI is an intelligence agency as well as a law enforcement agency. It in interacts regularly with uh, the CIA and, and the National Security Agency and uh, the other uh, instrumentalities of American intelligence. Uh, and uh, he certainly appeared in his testimony uh, at the Senate yesterday to be uh, both uh, precise and cautious in his choice of words. As you know, the White House uh, throughout the week saying that morale has been low inside the FBI based on what you know, your reporting, and we, what you know about Jim Comey. Is that accurate or not? Uh, in a narrow sense, uh, it's uh, never fun when the president of the United States uh, is attacking uh, the institution uh, that you work for, uh, just as he called, uh, compared the, the uh, Central Intelligence Agency and its officers to Nazis um, in January, uh, he's been uh, imputing, if I may use that word, uh, that uh, the FBI's investigation of the Russian hacks and whether Americans aided and abetted those hacks is uh, a hoax. Uh, well, it's not a hoax. Uh, it is, as Mr. McCabe said, a very serious investigation that goes to the heart of uh, the rule of law in, in American uh, public democracy. 
Based on the uh, events of the last uh, couple of months, it sounds like there may be either an addendum to your book or maybe perhaps a new book in the works for you. Oh, I think that people are going to be writing about this for a long time. And I think that um, uh, the president's desires to the contrary, notwithstanding that uh, this uh, investigation is not going to uh, magically vanish anytime soon. So if you could, let's take a step back and walk us through the process of investigating allegations of Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. What is that like? Who's involved? How extensive is it? What questions are asked? And where do they go for information? Well, based on what we know and what we know what we know, both from the uh, public testimony of, of senior U.S. government officials and from some pretty stellar reporting that's being done by news organizations like my old paper, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Reuters, uh, and other news outlets, um, back in midsummer of uh, 2016, in uh, July, shortly before the uh, Republican National Convention, where Mr. Trump was nominated, uh, American intelligence, both uh, FBI and uh, its counterparts at uh, the National Security Agency and the CIA, uh, began to get heads up from their uh, opposite numbers uh, in British intelligence, uh, their foreign intelligence service which has very close liaison with FBI and CIA, and from the German intelligence service, the BND, um, that uh, something strange was happening uh, in terms of contacts between uh, Russians and uh, people in uh, the Trump campaign. Uh, we uh, know that there were uh, alarming uh, warnings uh, delivered across the ocean um, or in person uh, contacts uh, between, for example, the FBI has um, a senior representative in, in the American embassy in London. He's called the legal attache. And uh, the FBI has legal attaches in every major American embassy. They are sort of like the CIA station chief. They work out of the embassy and they do liaison work with their counterparts in law enforcement intelligence. Well, this was alarming, to say the least. And then what the Russians did, as it's been described again in public testimony by senior American intelligence and law enforcement officials, was, uh, to use their terminology, loud. They weren't being covert about it. They were being uh, overt uh, about it as if they wanted it to be seen and that it became clear uh, as time passed by and as summer turned into fall and fall into winter that the aim of the Russian uh, attack uh, on the United States and Senator John McCain of Arizona has called it an act of war uh, was to uh, disrupt American democracy. And this is not the only democratic society where they have done this. They have done this uh, throughout Western Europe as well. And that it was the aim of Russian intelligence to damage 
the Democratic president for candidate and to uh, help elect the Republican candidate, which is an extraordinary thing to say. Now, why? We don't know yet. Uh, but we do know that a primary motive uh, of uh, Russian intelligence was to disrupt American democracy. And that is a staggering thing to say. The FBI uh, got on this case in a major way and remains on it in a major way. Uh, there are at least four field offices and one uh, central office at FBI headquarters across the country looking into various aspects of this case, the cyber aspects, uh, the financial aspects. And those agents in turn provide support when requested uh, to the Senate and House uh, Intelligence Committees and their work. So uh, it's now quite a far-flung thing. Uh, and uh, certainly one of the biggest uh, investigations of its kind, that is a counterintelligence investigation aimed at um, exposing espionage uh, by a foreign power, uh, one of the biggest and most politically charged of its kind since the Soviets stole the secrets of the atomic bomb uh, during and after World War II. Based on that very detailed and fascinating explanation, what is the overarching question that you have today? Did Americans aid or abet the Russian attack? If so, who were they? Why did they do it? And where's the money? So let's go back to two former directors. A lot of references to William Sessions, the last time a president fired an FBI director, Bill Clinton, July 1993. Why was he let go? Well, that was for cause, and it wasn't just one cause. On the final day of the George H.W. Bush administration, uh, 19 January 1993, the Department of Justice dropped a very disturbing report on uh, Judge Sessions' con uh, conduct as FBI director, which was essentially a litany of acts of petty corruption. Um misfeasance, malfeasance, nonfeasance in office, um, uh, using government planes for personal travel, uh, using government funds to erect a fence at his home, um, relatively penny-ante stuff, but it had added up uh, over time. Uh, and it was the recommendation of the Justice Department's uh, internal report, which landed on President George H.W. Bush's desk on his last full day in office in January 1993 that Mr. Sessions uh, be dismissed. Well, President Bush uh, took no action and left that uh, report uh, as a uh, sort of a parting gift to the incoming president, Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton had, uh, as you'll recall, in 1993, some trouble getting an attorney general uh, confirmed by the Senate and eventually, uh, after a couple of months, got Janet Reno confirmed as Attorney General. Shortly thereafter came the deadly confrontation uh, between the government, uh, the FBI, 
and the ATF, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, against the uh, millennial uh, group in Waco, Texas, uh, who called themselves the Branch Davidians. And this uh, standoff ended uh, horribly, uh, with uh, roughly 80 of the Davidians dying, including 25 children, um, in a conflagration. Uh, Sessions then had the poor taste, I'll use that phrase, to blame this on Janet Reno, his superior, uh, at which point the President of the United States said enough is enough and fired him. Um, he then, to his sorrow, his eventual sorrow, chose uh, Louis Free to be the next director of the FBI, and Judge Free, also a judge, had been a, uh, an FBI agent himself uh, for seven years, had been a very well-respected federal prosecutor, uh, was young, uh, upright, uh, and uh, he also uh, saw Bill Clinton early on in the first Clinton administration, uh, less as the commander-in-chief and more as uh, the subject of a series of continu continuing criminal investigations. Uh, as FBI director, uh, Mr. Free turned in his White House pass, and by the accounts of both Bill Clinton and uh, Mr. Free, the two men spoke perhaps half a dozen times over the course of the next seven years. So let me conclude where we began, the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover, which continues to loom large over the FBI. Since his death, all directors serving only a 10-year term. But one president, at least one that we know, wanted to fire him, Richard Nixon. He did not. Why? He wanted to fire Hoover because Hoover was uh, getting quite old. Uh, he was well into his 70s, uh, born in 1895. In 1970, he was 75 years old. But more to the point, Hoover didn't want to do Nixon's dirty work for him anymore. And by dirty work, I refer back to bugging, uh, black bag jobs, uh, break-ins, burglaries, against the president's real and imagined uh, political enemies in the United States. Uh, when Hoover uh, didn't want to do that dirty work anymore, uh, Nixon uh, set up his own uh, little bucket shop in the basement of the White House. They became known as the plumbers because they were uh, originally supposed to stop leaks of sensitive information. And this group uh, wound up uh, breaking into the Watergate Hotel uh, and the Democratic National Committee headquarters offices at the Watergate uh, in June of 1972. Hoover had died six weeks earlier. Tim Weiner is the author of Enemies, A History of the FBI. He's a former reporter for the New York Times. Joining us from New York City, we thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.